Dr. Aiken here. If you don't know him, he's a professor of uh, church history and biblical spirituality here at Southern Seminary, I think since 2007. Uh, so he is uh, originally from uh, Toronto, Canada, technically still lives there. Uh, so he drives eight hours every day to be with you guys. So I uh, <laughs> hope you're okay. So you maybe give him some gas money after you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, he did his doctoral work at uh, Wycliffe uh, in Toronto. As a part of University of Toronto uh, there in, uh, uh, in Canada. So he did a PhD there uh, in early Christianity, writing on uh, Cappadocian uh, interpretation of scripture in the Pneumatomachian controversy of the 4th century. So we have his dissertation here. We'll pass that around later. You can look at that. Uh, and then, uh, of course, married uh, to Allison. Uh, he has two grown children, uh, Victoria and Nigel. Uh, so we'll uh, hand it over. Ask some questions and kind of get an introduction going um, to know a little bit more about Dr. Keegan. Yeah, I think it'd be just most ideal to just to begin, Dr. Aiken, on on why you began studying ancient Christian studies. Maybe just kind of give some personal anecdotes on on how this journey started with you, other books, people, or other life circumstances that. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I you know I look back on on my life and you 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 see the hand of God. Uh, there prior to becoming a Christian. Um, I became a Christian when I was 20, um, but uh, I could uh, see after probably three or four years that God had been at work in my life a long time before that. And um, I've always loved history. Uh, I can, the earliest memories I have of school are uh, a grade, what would be the equivalent, I think, of grade one or two class under a Miss Davies who did some sort of project on Greece and Rome. <clears throat> and I took a very famous uh, picture of, um, of uh, Augustus Caesar and traced it out. I remember tracing this out as a five or six-year-old as part of this project. I have no idea what the project was. Um, but that's one of my earliest memories of a love for the classical world. Um, uh, I'm not really sure where I got this from because my my father, uh, to his own uh, by his own admission, he's a professor of electrical engineering. He's never read anything outside of electrical engineering. Um, he does read the newspaper, so he's got ideas about uh, the world, uh, politics, but uh, he just doesn't read outside his field at all. So I know he didn't give me uh, a love for history. <clears throat> my mother. Uh, left school when she was 16 to work in a chocolate factory, Cadbury's Chocolate Factory in Birmingham, uh, coming over from Ireland. And I'm not sure, she, I, I've got a little uh, a scholarship thing that she had when she was um, uh, probably about 12 for recitation in Gaelic studies. Um, I'm not sure I got that from her. I, I think so, but I don't know. Um, I just know that at a very early age, by the age of eight or nine, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not saying this I'm to, to, um, to in any way, shape, or form puff myself up. I, I remember sharing some of this many years ago at a Christian conference, and a man got up afterwards, and uh, I didn't realize what he was doing, but he was making fun of what I had shared as if I was trying to present myself as some sort of pseudo-intellectual. And uh, it's my life. I, I don't know... You know, I, this is the way God led me. But by, by, by around the age of eight or nine, uh, I was reading uh, children's versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
And that world just gripped my mind, the, the whole Greek and Roman worlds. Um, I remember um, a man named Mr. Norris in the final year that I, of schooling I had in England. In England, you take an exam at 11 years old. It's called the 11 plus. This used to be the case. It's no longer the case. <clears throat> and that decides whether or not you'll go to university. Because if you go to a grammar school uh, or a public school, which is actually a private school, then you'll go into a university track. If you go into the comprehensives, then you're, you're not going to go to university. And uh, so I was, in the, uh, I was in a public school, and uh, a Mr. Norris, I remember finding out my father's Kurdish background, I remember giving me uh, a book on ancient Iran. And those sorts of, those sort of little things, <clears throat> uh, Miss Davies, I, you know, I would have thought she was old then. She was probably only in her 30s. Uh, she might be still alive now. I, don't, I, don't, I could probably trace her. Um, and this man, Mr. Norris, I've tried to trace him. Uh, I have had contact with a man who I think was him, uh, but his name was Norrish or something like that. And I was going over to England about five years ago, and he was in his 80s then, and I was planning to, to see him, um, which didn't happen. Um, but these little, these are little, these, it's amazing how these little turning points shape your life. By the time I hit my teen years, I mean, I was uh, absolutely uh, in, in deep love with, with history, to the point I really bemoaned the fact that I, I was alive in this world at this point in time. I wish I'd lived in somewhere in the past. Um, was converted uh, at the age of 20 uh, in a Baptist setting. <clears throat> Um, I hated being a Baptist, and I didn't like the fact that most of the Baptists I spoke to had no idea history, uh, no interest in where they came from, who the Baptists were. And um, I'm very thankful my pastor uh, did not direct me to a Baptist seminary, but sent me to an Anglican, an evangelical Anglican seminary, part of what's called the Toronto School of Theology, which is a conglomerate of about a dozen seminaries, and also part of the University of Toronto. And uh, by the end of that time there, I was a convinced Baptist. Uh, believers, infant baptism, I just couldn't uh, find it biblically. And the other thing, it was interesting, the other thing was not so much a theological thing. It was the clericalism. You know, the, the wearing the collars and the, the pink, not the pink, the purple, <laughs> the bishops with the purple shirts. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's where my love of purple comes from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the huge crosses, and and I just realized that if I didn't, I, if I never became a priest in, in one of these, you know, like the Anglican Church or an Orthodox, you really doesn't matter what you had attained scholarship wise. You just really were not it. There was a level, and it it, it left a very deep distaste in my mouth, and I that sort of the ecclesiology uh, that was there. Now this is a very Anglican school, a very evangelical school. But there was still none of that clericalism and the issue of infant baptism, and I was a convinced Baptist. The issue was, uh, where did Baptists come from? And that was, that would, God would, I think, open that up to me in the 1980s. Um, <clears throat> given my love of the past, of the distant past, the ancient world, it's not surprising that that's what I gravitated to in my uh, MDiv studies. And uh, the first major paper I had to do on a patristic author was in um, second year theology I, under a man named Jakob Joch, who was a Jewish Christian, um, Lithuanian, 
He got out on the last boat before Hitler marched into Germany. Uh, Hitler marched into Latvia, uh, Lithuania in the 1941 or there. Uh, he was neo-Orthodox, um, but very conservative neo-Orthodox. Uh, just a remarkable uh, scholar. Had a deep sense of 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 uh, God's presence in his life. And I remember him asking me. I, I'd be, I'd done a BA in philosophy. So I, why don't you take Novatian's De, De Trinitate and write a critique of it? And so that really was my first introduction, in many ways, to the Fathers, and that kind of hooked me. Uh, I was studying Greek at the same time. I loved Greek. Uh, Greek clicked. I'd done Latin before, but Latin had never clicked the way Greek clicked. And I, I put that down to God working in my life. And I'd done German, French, and Latin in high school, and none of them had ever really kind of clicked with me. But Greek clicked, and then that provided the, 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 the vehicle to go back to those other languages. Um, I was very fortunate to have as a professor uh, a man named John Egan. He never wrote a lot. He never wrote a monograph or a book. He wrote about 20, 30 papers, mostly on his favorite author, whom he called Greg Naz, uh, Gregory Nazianzus. He did his Ph.D. under um, Charles uh, Canigise. He was a Jesuit, uh, did his Ph.D. at uh, the Sorbonne. Um, the Je- I, what amazed me, once I started to learn how the Jesuits trained, uh, you basically get your Ph.D. by your late 30s. And it's just an absolutely incredible training that these men go through, uh, which um, gives them a depth of scholarship, which we as evangelicals uh, often lack. And, um, uh, and I think that's changing. Uh, one of the things I remember looking at are PhDs done at Southern before the conservative resurgence. And you know, the liberals think that they were great scholars. Most of the PhDs that came out of Southern before the 90s aren't worth the paper they're written on. And I'm not, not trying to be rude or put down. Um, but I, at, uh, there, is a, there is a depth there in other circles that we as evangelical, I think we're, we're, we're catching up, and I think probably pretty fast. But uh, that, that's very telling that a man basically is, is 40 before he gets his PhD. He had done training at St. Louis. Uh, did his MA in uh, classical languages. Then he went to the, the Vatican, did uh, another MA in sacred literature there. And then he was about seven to nine years at the Sorbonne. And studied under a man named Charles Canigiser, uh, who was an Athanasius expert, did his doctoral work on Nazianzen. Um, he ran into problems with Canigiser. Um, um, uh, Alex and I were talking earlier about the whole issue of French and miscommunication in languages. And... John Egan, who was very good in languages, uh, was perceived by Canigiser to have insulted him about two years into the, the relationship. And Canigiser just kind of backed off. And uh, Egan was able to salvage his PhD by working with a man named D.A. Sykes, uh, even though Canigiser was his technical uh, doctor father. Uh, I met Canigis here for the first time about three years ago, introduced myself as a student of John Egan, Mm-mm. and he had very fond memories of Egan. So that was interesting. He's, he's married, he was a Jesuit priest, he left the order, and is married an Augustinian scholar named Pamela Bright. And they both gave papers at the session at UTS. It was, her paper was better than his. It was fascinating. <laughs> it was fascinating. Anyway, um, 
Egan was a tremendous uh, supervisor, and um, I would go to his. I, go, I would go. I took a number of courses with him on patristic anthropology, uh, patristic uh, pneumatology, Christology. He he loved taking a theme, tracking it through from Ignatius of Antioch all the way through to Augustine, and uh, <coughs> his methodology was: you you read the primary sources. Uh, he gave you. 10 or 15 major questions on a number of primary sources. And then it was he expected you also to read secondary sources in relation to that. This is an MDiv. It was very, very demanding. And then uh, you turned in your questions, and then you summarized his two-hour discussion uh, uh, later. So there were two major parts of the term. And then you had a sit-down oral exam with him on a subject for 20 minutes. And... Um, he had a he he was a very he was a very shy man, and uh, he always wore his uniform, which was the uh, the collar and the black, the black uh, the whole black thing. Um, he lived with in a Jesuit house. Um, uh, he never had a bank account. Uh, if he needed money, he just went to the accountant in the house, house and said, "I need such such money," and he was given it. And um, <clears throat> he. Um, uh, uh, once we, uh, st I started doing doctoral studies with him. Uh, he said, I expect you to be here every Friday morning um, around 8 o'clock. And you'd come in. Sometimes he'd slept in his office. He'd be there. And he slept in his uniform. So he's, I, I remember my wife, the first time she met him, she thought he was a bag man. You know, <laughs> really. He didn't care at all about his clothing. Uh, some, some, every second or third Friday, though, he'd go off and do a mass in an old people's home. Uh, he was a classical Orthodox Roman Catholic in many ways. Um, I think he was a believer, without a doubt. Um, that's, yeah, I just, I mean, uh, he had a love for Christ um, that was very, very evident. Um, anyway, that's, we can probably discuss that another time. And so what he would do is he'd say, I expect you to be here at 8 o'clock, and I'd come in, some, the place would be smoke-filled. He smoked these stogies, <laughs> you know, these cigarillos sometimes. And, I mean, I was basically breathing in second-hand smoke for the next three or four hours. And I, I thought this was normal. <laughs> uh, you go and you do four hours with your pro professor, supervisor every week. Wow. He did that for about three years. And uh, it took three months to write the prospectus. He, every line was wrong. So I had to go back and redo it. And uh, I, I remember coming home to my, telling my wife, I, I can't work with this man. And uh, he taught me how to write. Uh, it was amazing to me that I'd gotten that far in my academic career, and I didn't know how to write. I didn't know how to construct a flow of argument. I did not know how to ask questions of text. And he taught me that. Um, sadly, he died in 1999. He fell. Um, he... He was very nearsighted, and he fell down some stairs in his home, uh, went, uh, uh, hit his head, and went into a coma and, and, and uh, died. Mm. Uh, going to the mass, there was we, it was supposed to be a memorial service for him, but it turned out to be a funeral mass, mm. which was a very difficult experience for me. There were about 250 nuns <coughs> and priests. I, I didn't see many lay people. And so they, they, they had the communication <coughs> of the elements, and I thought, I, I just can't go up. And I remember thinking, what would, what would Luther and Calvin, 
What will they say to me <laughs> when I see them in glory that I actually went out? And so I, I, was the, I was the only one. The whole place empties. You know, like 200, you know, and there were bishops there. The whole, the whole thing empties to go up. And there's me, another, an Anglican, one of my church's uh, uh, history teachers from Wycliffe College, uh, Alan Hayes, and a Romanian Orthodox <laughs> scholar, because they're not in communion with Rome. <laughs> and um, that was a very interesting, I, mm. it was there when I learned that the Roman Catholic Church sings the hymns of Charles Wesley. Mm. We're singing this great hymn. And I'm like, man, this is so good. Who wrote this? I turned the page, it's Charles Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's, um, mm. yeah, that's, yeah, it's, that's rich. It's mm-hmm. a rich, rich testimony. <laughs> Uh, I think that leads us uh, into the discussion of your dissertation. So here's, here's his dissertation. We'll pass this around. Published through, uh, through Brill on the Spirit of God, the exegesis of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and uh, the controversy in the 4th century. Um, so would you mind just kind of giving some personal anecdotes through the process of writing this? How did you come to this topic over others? Were there others that you were wrestling with? Maybe tell some of right you already shared a little bit of the writing struggles but uh what what did that process look like for you as a student uh that you kind of remember yeah I, I came to that uh subject uh first of all because when i was converted i was i was in a church where the pastor bruce woods uh who i see every every six months still uh we have tea he, he's a very eccentric individual in some ways he's a baptist lifelong baptist did his uh, mass THM at Dallas. Um, he, I was converted under his ministry, baptized by him, uh, married by him. But towards the end of the 1980s, he began to be uh, coming. He was a charismatic, and he wanted to take the church in the charismatic movement. Uh, the church did not want to go there, so he left. He started a group, charismatic group, um, and uh, they ended up trying to join the vineyard. He was not that charismatic. <laughs> so they, 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 they fired him. And um, he's, he's in his early 80s. He's, uh, he's written two books on his life. And then he's mo- recently he's written a, a book. And he, he goes around to Kiwanis groups and uh, women's groups, sells these books. He's sold his first book he sold, he sold 10,000 copies. He's made over $100,000 because it was self-printed out of his first book on his life. And anyway, his third book is on sex. <laughs> so it's apparently, I, I can't imagine an 83-year-old man going into uh, uh, a women's meeting <laughs> with, you know, most of the women over 60 uh, talking about his sex book. Anyway, he was, I, I had just I had tea with him a few weeks ago. And he, yeah, yeah, he said, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go. It's a women's group. He says, but I'll, I'll tell them about my two other books, and then at the end, I'll hit them with the sex book. <laughs> that they can buy this if they want. <laughs> anyway, uh, under the influence of Bruce, it's interesting. You know, I, I didn't know what expository preaching was, and he, was a to- he, was a, he wasn't an expository preacher. He was a topical preacher. And looking back, I've always made notes of sermons. I realized how many he preached on the Spirit. And some of them were weird sermons. Like the sermon he did on the change of Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. And the ha is like the ruach, so the spirit. So when the change of name means Abraham becomes a spirit-filled man. And uh, anyway, that influence. (laughs) 
uh, that influence uh, really got me influenced in the charismatic movement. And uh, my wife and I used to go, and we may have gone with him a couple of times, to a thing called Bezac in Ontario, about half an hour from where we lived. Friday night meeting, it was part of the Jesus movement, really. Friday night meeting, uh, start at 7 o'clock, go to about 11. There'd be some preaching, but a lot of it was worship and uh, charismatic prophecies, speaking in tongues. and So I kind of saw, I didn't see all, there wasn't a lot of people being slain in the spirit, but I saw a lot of that stuff and had to work through that. That got me deeply interested in the Holy Spirit. And um, so not surprisingly, that, that, had a, that shaped, and I think that's very important. I think you have to choose a topic theologically uh, for your thesis that you're, you're interested in, not simply intellectually, but has some experiential uh, element to it. And I was deeply interested in the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer's life. By the time I finished the thesis, uh, I'd moved, I went through a process from being charismatic to kind of a Keswick holiness, briefly, to reformed. And by the time I finished the thesis, I was, I was moving in a reformed direction. You know, I was reading uh, bits of Owen, Martin Lloyd-Jones, etc. And so uh, um, the, the issue of scripture, uh, why scripture, because really this is a study of reception history and how scripture shaped the, the, the debates of the fourth century. I was very unhappy with most of the fourth century discussions I read of the development of uh, Trinitarian theology. Because they all assumed primarily that this was a philosophical debate at its heart. And what was driving these men were philosophical issues. It became apparent to me that what was driving these men were primarily soteriological and doxological issues. If, if Jesus is not God, fully God, then we are not saved. And if the Spirit be not fully God, we can't worship. And Scripture was the... I mean, I... I I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why a lot of prominent patristic scholars who read these texts couldn't see the dominance of Scripture page after page after page. Of course, there were philosophical elements coming here, here and there. Um, the classic example of this is when Augustine's De Trinitate is reprinted in any substantial form. They normally miss out the four books or five books on, the, on, on Scripture. And what they reprint are his psychological analogies of the Trinity and the human, you know, the human frame or philosophical arguments. Whereas, in fact, Augustine goes through all of that and basically indicates this cannot capture for us what the Trinity is. And then he goes to Scripture. And that, to me, I think captures a lot of patristic scholarship regarding the Trinity in the mid-20th, early to mid-20th uh, century. I mean, I was, I was still dealing with men like um, Jandy Kelly, uh, a pelican. Uh, it was before the rise of people like Louis Ayers, Michel Barnes, who have done so much to, to emphasize the importance of Scripture. Michel Barnes actually was a fellow student uh, under Egan. And um, so. So it was uh, it's, uh, the interest in the spirit, which had a personal element, but also the interest in. I, I just thought the scholarship was wrong. I. I, th I thought scripture was really very, very important to these men. It was scripture that was driving these men. And so that's what the, the, the thesis was designed to show. Yeah, that's great. We, we have about 10 minutes left because we we'll want to open it up for, for questions. But yeah, so I think, uh, so going back to what we originally started out with, you know, we have uh, n numerous disciplines represented here. So um, 
uh, pretty much every spectrum of discipline is in this room. Uh, but we're talking about ancient Christian studies. Uh, so, Dr. Haken, maybe you could give just a, a, a little um, sermonette, maybe, uh, on why ancient Christian studies might be important for everyone in this room, or how it can be, uh, and then maybe even more specifically uh, because of our Baptist context. You know, ancient Christian studies in a Baptist setting, uh, what's the relation there? Um, well, for me personally, uh, uh, as, as a Christian, I belong to the Catholic Church. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but I'm, I belong to the Catholic Church. And as a Christian, uh, I affirm the Catholicity of the Church. And I think for Baptists, and partly because of their ecclesiology in the 19th century, uh, Baptists before the 19th century, I think, were different. But after the 19th century, because of landmarkism, it, even if you didn't embrace a landmarkist position, it, it, it filtered out into our churches um, to the point that we became, well, you have landmarkism, you have the whole idea from John Leyland in the late 18th, early 19th century, no Bible but the creed, no creed but the Bible, we don't need creeds, we just need the Bible. Uh, you have the democratization that g- goes on in American evangelicalism with Nathan Hatch, where not only... Uh, there, you, you, not only is the past rejected, but even the, the guy in the pulpit, because he's got a theological degree, doesn't mean he's any better at interpreting scripture than I am. And um, so you've got all of those factors, I think, that have shaped Baptist life in the 20th century. And uh, I mean, the landmarkism is the extreme. There's no such thing as the Catholic Church, the universal church. It doesn't exist. It's just these local churches. Uh, but once you have an understanding of yourself, and I, maybe some of my experience, because I was an Anglican, because I was in an Anglican setting and I was raised Catholic, gave me a sense of that. I mean, I, I've had people say that to me. You know the reason you're arguing this, because you, you know, you're raised Catholic and you have these hangovers. <laughs> uh, but I don't think so. I, I, I think, for me, one of the most precious things about my Christianity is it's a Catholic faith. Not just, just as my, me and a group of North American evangelicals, but there's a, there's a Catholicity here that goes back into the Puritans and into the Reformers, and then all the way back. And I, I tried to read the, the Fathers the way the Reformers read the Fathers. I mean, Calvin's love for the Augustine, uh, or Cramner. Cramner was preeminently a patristic scholar. And it, his notebooks, which have never been published, and probably can't be, consist of huge reams of patristic quotations. Uh, the Reformation was a great period for patristic uh, reprinting. Erasmus led that at Basel. And suddenly these men, the Reformers, realized, you know, the medieval scholastics, they, they've really taken things in very wrong directions. They're not in touch with the fathers at all. And uh, so I think that's uh, very, very important for me, uh, this Catholicity of the faith. Um, and... Uh, how many of you were in Broadus Chapel this morning? Was there a problem in the worship this morning? Mm-hmm. What was the problem? The opening prayer. The opening prayer was absolutely heretical. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Now, I, I, he's a young brother in Christ. He, he, he was probably deeply nervous. Uh, I can well imagine that. I've, I've spoken... Uh, in the presence of that context and with Dr. Moeller there. Uh, that's enough to make you nervous. Uh, but it was a complete modeless prayer. He said, Father, thank you for laying down or giving your life for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, 
Uh, that threw the whole prayer. I, cu I couldn't even concentrate after that. <laughs> <laughs> but why should we know the fathers? Because the fathers battled modalism and declared that modalism is a heresy. And what I heard this morning in, in worship was heresy. And uh, I think it's naive. And I, I don't think our brother's a heretic. And, uh, but I, 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 that probably goes on all the time in our churches. Well, I know it does. I've heard Anne Graham Lotz do it publicly. You know, and um, anyway, so that one. Why should we know the fathers? Well, you know, the Trinity, Christology, Chalcedonian Christology is absolutely bedrock for who we are. Yeah. You know, and so much of, of those things. Yeah, that's great. We we just have a few more minutes left, so maybe just one more question, then we'll open it up for for questions from the students. But you, we, you do have uh, some. What time are we going to? We uh, the club goes one fifty-five, two fifteen. Yeah. Okay. But if you have, if you have responsibilities, we'd plan. Two fifteen is great. Okay. okay. Yeah. We'll I thought I was going to two thirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why I was going on and on and on. Which one? No, a couple more than Yeah. Um. So then I'll hold off on that <laughs> that closing question then. Uh, maybe, maybe just for those just wanting to kind of get their feet wet within patristic literature, or those that are already in, invested in it, maybe give some helpful pointers on where to go. Maybe with some primary literature to actually wrestle with original texts, or some just helpful secondary literature um, to kind of give us a lay of the land. Um, my education was very much among the Greek and Latin fathers, so. Uh, you, you, you hit Justin Martyr, and Justin, I've come to appreciate Justin much more as a more important figure in recent days, because I'm convinced by Sarah Parvis that, uh, in her monograph on Justin, that he is the, he invents the genre of apologetics, as we know it. Um, Irenaeus, I think he's the greatest theologian of the second century, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um... So you really need to have some familiarity with Irenaeus. He, he shapes deeply some later theologians. Um, he's very popular today, uh, particularly because of his understanding of, uh, of, of God's redemptive work in, in, among human beings and the vision of God that he sketches. Uh, Tertullian is a, a tantalizing figure. You wouldn't want the man in your church. <laughs> he, he is a hardcore rigorist. And uh, I think sometimes a legal, legal, he's got a legalistic temper, but he's just a very exciting uh, apologist. And his, what he can do with language, uh, there's a brilliance there. Uh, and very important for Trinitarian theology, is against praxis, is, is standard. He, he, he creates the grammar we use. Um, you know, the, the, the Baptists I love in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, their grammar of, of, the, of the Trinity, which they, it was very vital for them because they had to fight anti-Trinitarianism in that period, it, it's, it's a patristic grammar, and Tertullian is, 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 is at the heart of that. Uh, Origen, uh, I really love Origen. He's not orthodox in some areas. Uh, you know, his, his view of the, the pre-existence of the soul of Christ. Uh, I don't believe he believed the devil could be saved. Uh, there's a letter that's come out recently since the 1970s in which he actually refutes that. So this is a slander that's being said about me. Uh, our problem with uh, Origen is in the 7th century, Justinian, the emperor, Byzantine emperor, uh, took a deep dislike to Origen. And there had been Origenist battles going on since the 5th century. And Origen was condemned as a heretic. 
in some of his areas. Um, but he is a major, major figure. He's a conduit for uh, a lot of the 4th century in Trinitarian theology. And his apologetics, uh, its origin that we owe the fact in one sense under God that we have the Old Testament. Origin was a, uh, his, his development of the hexapla, the whole project that Dr. Gentry's involved in. That's origin. We're just a remarkable scholar. And um, you should be, the one thing you should be familiar with origin is either De Principis, the On First Principles, which is a systematic theology, or is against Celsus, which is tremendous. Huh. Uh, then there's Athanasius on the incarnation of the word uh, is important there. I love his little defense of the Psalms to Marcolinus, why we should sing the Psalms. Uh, they would have sung the Macapella. And then in the 4th century, uh, I've been recently drawn to Hilary of Poitiers, who I think is a very important theologian, uh, overlooked. If Augustine had never written a book on the Trinity, we'd all know Hilary. But Augustine wrote his book on the Trinity, and Hilary's kind of fell into the shade. Um, the Cappadocians, who are where I've done a lot of my work. Uh, I think what I like about the Cappadocians in some sense is I, with Basil, who I've spent a lot of time with, we have an enormous number of his letters. And... I, and uh, many of the number of these figures, like Irenaeus, you can sum his life up in 10 pages maximum. Not his thought, but his life. You can't do that with Basil. You can actually write a full biography of Basil. And that because of his letters. And you, you kind of get to know the man. Um, uh, his uh, brother, Gregory Nyssa, who again, I've been growing in my appreciation for Nyssa. Uh, when I was at your level, I kind of wrote Nyssa and Origin off. They were too philosophical. Uh, I don't think that's true. Um, and then Nazianzen, I did a lot of work on Nazianzen because my so supervisor was a Greg Naz scholar. Um, a very human theologian, very touchy. Um, he was an introvert to an extreme, but and he was hurt very easily. You could see that in a number of things. And then Augustine. Um, uh, and uh, you, you need to know Augustine's On the Trinity, City of God, and his Confessions, if you don't know anything else. I just picked up his little book on the instruction um, of the ignorant or something like that. People before they enter the catechumenate. Uh, and the reason I got alerted to that is Dr. Moeller required all the members of the uh, cabinet, so all the VPs, to read that. Uh, yeah, he, when, when they go on retreat, he gives them about five or six books, usually around three to 400 pages each, <laughs> to have read before they go. And one of the ones he gave was this. But this one was only about, it's only about 100 pages. And I thought, why have I never read this before? It's great. It's, 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 it's a guy who thinks his preaching isn't really kind of pitting home to his congregation of, of these n n new, new believers and asking Augustine, you know, how do I do this? Mm. And Augustine goes into, you know, uh, how, how you communicate the gospel to people who have no idea. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very helpful. Uh, and then uh, Patrick. Um, and um, I got interested in Patrick because um, my mother's Irish. And Patrick is just a remarkable mission-minded. Uh, he's, a, he's a William Carey, you know, and the end of the patristic era. So... Mm -hmm. Primary sources, yeah. right? Yeah, any, any secondary text? Secondary sources, uh, you need to read Von Harnack. <laughs> uh, absolutely incredible theolo uh, historian. His theology is for the birds, you know. 
but as a historian, he 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 just knew the history of dogma so so well. And we, I mean, we've we've gotten far more, you know, a, a second a primary source material than he would have had. But he's just a very important figure. Yaroslav Pelikan, obviously, uh, and because of my interest in spirituality in the fathers, um, Robert Wilkin would be a key figure. And then the men, I, I, these two men I mentioned earlier, Lewis Ayers and Michel Barnes. Um, if this uh, center that uh, uh, Coleman and Sean have been assiduously developing, and I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed by what they've done. If this gets off the ground, it gets official recognition, we hope to have Lewis Ayers in the spring. He's up at Notre Dame for a year. And I'm really impressed with the, both him and Michelle Barnes as, as uh, scholars of this period and so on. Um, you know, just kind of, so we want to have some Q&A time. I think this last question would be really helpful. Um, you know, I think as, and I can attest to this as a supervisor, you know, Dr. Haken is, is very um, uh, intentional, very relational, one-on-one uh, -on -one with his students um, that he advises and other students that you don't even advise, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> What, so Dr. Hagen, if you could sit down with a PhD student, uh, maybe a new accepted PhD student, or maybe someone who's just kind of in the courses uh, uh, doing the work, um, if you had two minutes to sit down with them, um, what would you tell him or her uh, to do? What, I mean, just some advice as a, as a up-and-coming scholar. Uh, you, you've really got to be serious about this. And... Uh, I know the question comes up, you know, how, how long is this going to take? So see when you get to writing. Uh, it's going to take as long as it's going to take. And uh, I, I've had more than one student, and I could just feel what they're doing. They, they push back on, on things I suggest. Uh, and really what they're wanting, what's the shortest way I can get this done and get past? And to be honest, if that's your attitude, you shouldn't be doing a PhD. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're doing a PhD for. You're learning how to become a scholar for the rest of your life. And that just takes time. I mean, I, the Jesuit, I mean, as I said, this guy was a Jesuit. He just started teaching his, at the end of his 30s. And he'd been doing this since around the age of 20. And now they, they have a whole structure. Uh, they, they don't allow everybody to go on and... They deem it, you know, okay, you've, you've done your MA in classics after your baccalaureate. You're going to teach for so many years in that area. Then we'll allow you to go and do your uh, STD at the Vatican. And then we'll determine if you go to the Zobon. I mean, it's very rigid. But having said that, I mean, I, you can understand why when you read men like Henri de Lubac and Jean-Daniel Lou, these French scholars, just the depth that is there... And then you read some uh, North American scholars before, before the 70s and 60s and 70s, you know, like a Glenn Hinson who was here. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it, 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 you just can't compare them. Mm. And uh, I, I hate hearing that question. Mm. I, I don't say that. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a bit too kind maybe. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't say like, just never ask me that question ever again. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I, I don't understand why you're asking me that question. Like, you're here to become a research scholar. And that's why we're training you as a PhD. You may end up in the pastorate, but if, to, be, to be a research scholar, that's why you're taking a PhD. 
you need to be turned. If it takes me another year, it's fine. That's well done. And I think that's the main thing I, I would I would say. I mean, in patristics, patristics is particularly difficult because you need you need Latin Greek. Uh, I think you need Syriac now. I don't. I'm too old to get Syriac. <laughs> Uh, but I th I th the Syriac is an up-and-coming field. Dr. Gentry is teaching it in the spring. Fabulous. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then you, you need French and German. And I just don't know how you can do patristics without French or German and the ability to at least r read those languages to some degree. And um, that, that's, that adds to the difficulty. I grant that. But I think that's what I would, I would say. Look, he, uh, it, it's like those words Jesus said, you know, uh, nobody goes out to make war unless they've sat down, figured out, like, is this feasible? And I expect when a man comes into a PhD program or a woman, they have sat down and they figured there's a cost to this. And yes, I'm prepared to make that cost because I, I, I believe God is calling me, not just that I want to be, but God is calling me to be a scholar in this area for the church. Thank you, Dr. Hicken. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I don't know when I'm going to have time to learn Syriac, but uh, <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do my best. Next spring. Yeah. Next spring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you take this seriously? I, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, no, thank you for your... Uh, both. Your I mean, the Syriac... You know, it's a bit of a, hey, it's a bit hedge, exotic. Hedge. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get it as fast as I can. No. Uh, well, thank you for the testimony. Yeah. Thank you for the advice and the, mm -hmm. and the direction. And, you know, just encouragement to all those who are here, again, with the proposed center that we have. I mean, regardless, uh, you know, again, we're, we're pushing towards the direction of a kind of official center sponsored by Southern Seminary. But... Uh, either way, it is it is a group of us that are gathering together that have like interests, uh, both to produce scholarship. So, um, you know, an, an online journal, uh, book reviews, blog posts, things like this. Uh, so, if any of you in this room or anyone you know that's a PhD student or, or capable of doing the work, uh, want to invite you to contact me or Sean, or Sean and myself, uh, to hopefully be a part of that. You know. Uh, even if it's just you want to do a blog post one time, you have this idea, you've maybe got it from a seminar, a paper you wrote, and you feel like this is just a blog post I want to put out there, you know, we'd more than welcome that. Uh, and, of course, anything above that as well. Um, so for the next maybe five to ten minutes, just want to open up for Q&A. Any questions uh, from what Dr. Haken has said already or some question that might be related to something you're thinking about, uh, anything that would be relevant for Dr. Haken? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure we're all encouraged by what seem to be good signs that evangelicals are hopefully catching up or trying to. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What, what are some of the bright lights and what is some of the movement maybe thinking in North American evangelical circles of men who, or, or ladies who are pursuing patristic studies and, and adding to the field? Um, people like Paul Hartog, who is at, is he at Faith Baptist Seminary? Yes. You know, he's in his, I don't think he's more than 40. Um, the fact that there are a number of students here who want to do patristics. I mean, uh, when I went through to do patristic, I was probably the only evangelical. It was, you know, when you'd go to patristic conferences, I mean, it's all these, you know, monks, you know, and you could tell they're monks and, you know, nuns, nuns aplenty. And <laughs> 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 
Uh, if there's no monks and nuns, they're priests. And you just feel very odd, you know. You know, I don't have one of those huge crosses, and I don't have the don't have the get up. And, yeah, I can, yeah. And that that's all changed. Yeah. You know, we've got uh, significant at ETS, significant number of scholars who are younger in patristics. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm thrilled by you know I don't want to embarrass them, but you know by Coleman and and uh, Sean here, uh, who are interested in patristics and uh, moving in that direction. And um, you know, we've got uh, John Mark Beasley. I, you know, some of you don't know John Mark. He's working in Novatian. And then I love the Stephen Cadet, uh, our Bahamian brother. He's working on John Gill's appropriation of the fathers in his Trinitarian theology. So, yeah, so those things, they didn't, there was nobody doing the fathers back then. So those are very encouraging signs. Great. Any, anyone else? <laughs> Dr. Hagen, I have a question for you. Um, if For most of us who come here, part of the reason we like coming here is because we get to hear from folks outside of our discipline. And so a lot of us, uh, and I don't want to throw you guys in the bus, but I find myself becoming interested in so many different facets that sometimes it's hard for me to narrow when I think about focusing in on my dissertation. Can you offer any tips or suggestions on, I mean, you seem to have a, a wide purview in your scholarship, but how do you sift through some of that to really focus and, and research deeply? Sometimes it's, it's providence. I mean, when I, when I started my MDiv, I thought I was going to be a pastor or a missionary. Uh, within a year, I knew that I didn't fit either of those. Uh, then I thought maybe Old Testament, but uh, for some reason Wycliffe College didn't require Old Testament. So <laughs> did, sorry, didn't require Hebrew. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, didn't require Hebrew. Yeah. Same thing. In my yeah. 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 yeah, and I realized within a year, I, I you know, I, I was so caught up in the history and Greek, I, I, I didn't have time to take the Hebrew. I, I can't read Hebrew. That's a, a, you know, I remember being in in the library over here once and. I, I wanted to find out, you know, a, a dictionary article on uh, the spirit, so ruach, uh, and uh, I, I couldn't read the Hebrew, so I had to ask a student, you know, can you read Hebrew? <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell me where this article is? And anyway, um, <clears throat> so I think some of it's providential. So I wasn't required to do Hebrew. I didn't do Hebrew. <coughs> And so that, that, by, that whole area bypassed me. And then for me, the fathers, um, you see you got that period. Fourth century in particular was where I began really to focus. When I got into churches uh, and asked to do, I, I do probably a dozen church history conferences a year. So I'll do one in, uh, on November the 1st, Ajax Alliance Church, Christian Missionary Alliance. I've been going there for about 10 years, and they always have a kind of a church history day. And um, uh, I, be, I soon learned they didn't, they didn't want the fathers. They're all Catholic. So I knew I had to do something else. So initially, it was the Puritans. Uh, I find the Puritans difficult to read sometimes. And um, 18th century Baptist is where it, it came uh, and so, so some of it's providence. And then as time goes on, you just realize, I, I just don't have time to read those areas. So there's large tracts of church history. I, I really don't have. 
I mean, you have to do it for the history survey, the survey course, but it's just large tracts I, I just will never get to. So some of it is providential, and some of it God, God uses that, but God also, I think, uses your own desires and interests. Uh, pneumatology has been a dominant theme. So the 18th century, well, the Purans are interested in the spirit, but the 18th century had revival, and that really drew me, just these remarkable scenes. And so... Doctor, I can have a question. Um, so, in Hans Frey's book on the eclipse of biblical narrative, he did a survey of you know how we came about with historical criticism and biblical theology and this sort of thing. And so, the claim that he makes, and I feel like you hear a lot with TIS and this sort of thing, is that concern about the history behind the text wasn't a major concern until. Um, the apologetics of the rise of deism and, and um, the pietists and conservatives with Cochius is starting to do a history of salvation, this sort of thing. Is, is that's the argument that he makes. Is that sort of when um, apologetically conservatives start trying to argue for the history behind the text, whereas up to that point... Um, with the church fathers and everything, it was just assumed, right, that, that it was just um, because the narrative was real, it portrayed a history-like narrative that the historical nature of Scripture was just assumed with the narrative rather than trying to, to use the text as evidence for, you know, some behind-the-text ostensive reference. So I just wondered, in your research, what you've seen... Um, I just asked that because it's a personal question of mine that, that I'm interested in. I wanted to look and see the validity of, of that. Um, with the apologetics, Justin Martyr and these other early church histories, are they arguing for authorial intent and that sort of thing? Um, I mean, authorial intent obviously comes into, into discussion, but not the authorial intent of the human author. It's the divine author. Mm -hmm. So they will see uh, Christological... Adumbrations or shadows in portions of Holy Scripture we would never see, uh, because they believe that you know Scripture has first and foremost a divine author, and God has planted therefore Christ in the Old Testament. So the sort of authorial tent that you find in the 19th and 20th century, um, in some ways they don't have access to that. I mean the the whole history of the ancient Near East really doesn't develop as a discipline until the 19th century, with a lot of those archaeological discoveries. Uh, you know, the, the unearthing of the Egyptian culture and civilization through the pyramids, the, uh, the discovery of the palaces of the Assyrian kings, uh, the various clay tablets in the, uh, the old Babylonian world, you know, of Abraham. We don't have access to any of that. So we really, I mean, scholars prior to the 19th century really didn't have, uh, apart from the Greco-Roman world, where they had literature to compare uh, the, the New Testament with, and none of the Old Testament. They don't have any of the external literature. That's why the KJV translators, uh, when they hit Hebrew words uh, that are unique in the Bible, they've got no idea sometimes how to translate them. And you've got some very interesting translations in uh, some of the, say, Job or Amos, which cannot be sustained today be simply because we have... We have more literary resources. So some of those questions, uh, even if they were asking them, they, they couldn't even formulate an answer because they don't have the literary context and they don't have the historical context. 
to raise those questions. They do in the New Testament. Uh, historical questions are important. Origen, for instance, is very... When he tackles a text, he always asks, is this historically credible? Yes, he believes it is. And he'll, he's actually often gone to the places. Like, for instance, when that place where it says there was not much water, uh, or there was much water where John was baptizing, he went to what he thought was the place. He checked it out. He said, yeah, there's still a lot of water here. John <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. So John, obviously, this is, this is where John was baptizing. So there is, that, there is that desire for historical verification. But until the discovery of you know, places like Nineveh, the palaces of the Assyrian kings, the opening up of Egyptian culture. I mean, until the, um, the uh, Rosetta Stone, they couldn't, they couldn't even read the hieroglyphics. And the Rosetta Stone is early, very early 19th century. So, or 1790s. Um, so, but where they could, there is a desire for historical verification. Uh, there is a recognition. For instance, um, the debates about the authentic, the, uh, uh, inspiration of Revelation begin with Origen raising questions about the difference of language between Revelation and the, jo- the other Joanine material. And then Dionysius of Alexandria takes that one step further and says, the difference of language must indicate two different authors. And then Eusebius of Caesarea takes that even further. If, it's, if it is not John the Apostle who's wrote, written Revelation, it's not inspired because we need apostolic authorship. And so Revelation, for a period of time in the 4th century, was not part of the Greek church's canon. So those, those sort of questions are going on, but there are limitations on them. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question. I think it's helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's important to show that there is a desire, but maybe the reason it's not an emphasis is because of uh, inability, you know, and I think, and, and I think they, they do recognize, like in the synoptic problem, that there are different emphases, say, in John. Uh, John ha- was a, uh, the, as uh, Maurice Wiles in his book calls it, it was described as the spiritual gospel. And the other three are, are different. And so there, is, there, there are those sorts of recognitions. Um, a lot of the so-called contradictions of Scripture, the phenomena, problem, I mean, th- those, those have been known all the way back to the fathers, obviously. And there have been ways of trying to resolve those. Uh, on the other hand, I think Hans Fry does have, uh, has some, I think there is, uh, I think he's right to some degree. Um, and what, what that has produced in the in, uh, New Testament, Old Testament scholarship since the 19th century is an enormous hubris, which is n- really nothing is worth a v- value before, before, before uh, the rise of critical scholarship. Yeah, great. We have time for one more. If anyone wants to, maybe maybe to close us out before I hand it over to, to Jonathan. Maybe if we've sparked an interest in some of the students here today, um, what are potential works that need to be done at the dissertation level, um, at the book level, or at the maybe just maybe small enough that they either none of those will work, but maybe a journal article. You know what what needs to be uh, have attention given to. Um, th- uh, there are, I mean, even with the major figures, there are, I think, certain projects. I think one of them is uh, reception history, reception of scripture, uh, their interpretation, the history of interpretation. The dangers, I think it's dangerous, though, to do a history of interpretation over a number of figures in different centuries, uh, partly because I think, I think you need a fairly wide reading, and only time can give you that in these men. 
Um, it's amazing. People like Didymus. Uh, very little done on his pneumatology, really speaking. Uh, the Theodore Mopsuestia used um, John Egan used to call him Teddy the Mop. <laughs> John John Egan had names for all everybody, and so Teddy the Mop. He really hasn't had you know his his stuff done uh, 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 much done on him in, in, for a number of reasons. Partly because I suspect he's been uh, he's be, he was classified within historians. Uh, there are always a host of minor figures, Eusebius of Samosata, Eusebius of Vercelli, um, Brazilian of Avila, that fascinating figure who was condemned for heresy in Spain and actually executed by Roman authorities, the first execution of an actual Christian author for heresy, uh, assuming he, well, he, he might have been a heretic, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> So there's a variety of minor figures there. Uh, I think uh, if you're in chapel today, uh, all, what, the main thing I thought of today as a historian was how important it is to understand how the early church faced persecution. If, if we're moving in that direction, uh, there are probably two major periods in Western history. One is the Reformation through to the beginning of the 18th century, and the other is the Patristic period. And uh, so those, sometimes those questions spark an, is, they, 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 no, the, the, that area is not being discussed because it's not being perceived as really necessary. And suddenly the situation arises. Yes, let's go back and read the fathers on persecution. Um, so those are some things that uh, come to mind. Macarius Simeon, I, I think he has, he has a lot to teach us. I was just reading this little book, um, Dangerous Passions, Deadly Sins, Learning from the Psychology of Ancient Monks. Um, he actually says here at one point, except for a few lone voices, ancient and med early medieval Christian sources have been virtually ignored in the area of practical theology, even by contemporary Christian psychologists dealing with virtue theory and, and so on. And Macarius Simeon is a key figure in this whole area. And uh, how to fight anger and greed, and, and lust. And uh, a lot of these, these men have enormous amount to teach us, I think, in those areas.